You might not have put two and two together or realize that this podcast, it's actually produced by a nonprofit, listener-supported Wyoming Public Media. We're just a little old station housed in a basement on the beautiful University of Wyoming campus. We aren't getting paid big bucks as a for-profit business. No siree, we're making this podcast not for money, but because everyone on our team believes in what we do, telling the missing stories of the real American West. But that means we rely on people like you. If you make sure to download every episode as soon as it comes out, or have been telling all your friends what a big Modern West fan you are, or would be seriously bummed if we disappeared from your feed, If all that describes you, I wonder if you'd take a quick minute to do something for me. Get into your browser and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. Previously on The Burn Scar. Ariel's parents decide they aren't equipped to tackle rebuilding their house at their age. They move into a senior living facility that seems like a good option for her dad since he has dementia. Her mother, though, isn't so sure. And Ariel makes her first visit to see the burn site and notices how, even though it's all burned to ash, the place still evokes memories of childhood. Meanwhile, Ariel's mom, Vicky, starts making hard decisions about how to pay to clean up the mess left behind by the fire. That means wading into the wacky world of insurance in an era of climate disasters. The whole family is getting a new education on navigating life after a wildfire. As Ariel's sister, Katie, points out, We're still kind of the climate generation in some sense. It's continuously the hottest year on record for us. I had that feeling before I ever had an awareness of the climate doom that would define our lives. From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is The Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. And here's Ariel. Mom and Dad are settled in the senior living facility, doing okay, though struggling with learning to live in a much smaller space than they're used to, with Mom sleeping on the couch. She has daily duties, helping my dad dress and clean himself, as well as keeping up with the changing financial situation. It's about all she can handle. Yet she starts seeing that some of our neighbors have jumped right into rebuilding. I was really impressed at how resilient Paul Austin was and how right away he says, we're rebuilding. And he just got right back in there. The Austins were our neighbors to the south. They were also some of the very first people in the neighborhood. When I interview Amy, we spend a lot of time reminiscing about the days when everyone was still new to the Enclave. You know what one of my very best memories is about you. <laughs> the Halloween and opening my front door. We didn't even have like any landscaping. We just had like snow on the dirt. And you were standing there and you just were covered in snow, just covered. And I had no other trick-or-treaters, so I just poured all the candy into your bag. 
Amy is also the mother to my little sister's best childhood friend. Katie and Kevin's friendship, just one of my most delightful memories. I've never ever seen two children play together better than them. They would like come over, she, Katie come over to our house and they play together for like four hours and then they go over to your house and play together for like four hours. They were so incredibly compatible. They, you know, turned out to need different kinds of partners, but I kind of figured they were always going to get married. <laughs> Their house also burned in the Marshall Fire. And like my parents, the Austins made out okay with their insurance situation. We've not had the typical experience. It was just by the stroke of luck of changing our insurance December 1st. But their luck hasn't diluted Amy's frustration with the typical experience of so many Marshall Fire victims. I talked to one of our neighbors who was literally having to do like inventory down to how many forks did you have in your drawer? Do you know how many forks that you have in your drawer? In a nation that pays so much money for insurance and that insurance companies have so much money that we pay all of these taxes and the government has so much money, why are these people losing hundreds of thousands of dollars that they have saved over time for their future? Amy reminds me a lot of the people I grew up around in our little Boulder suburb. Sometimes they're called bleeding heart liberals, tree huggers, snowflakes. But Amy didn't always subscribe to such liberal ideals. When they first moved to Louisville, Amy and her husband Paul thought about the world much differently. Oh, Ariel, you're going to have to do a whole other podcast on this, on Amy's transformation from card-carrying, born-again Christian Republican to socialist. <laughs> Louisville is very influenced by the liberal Boulder bubble, and I think people who move to this area of the country are also heavily influenced by the culture here. It's a bubble I needed to escape when I was young, because I felt like I didn't really know anything about the world. I grew up sheltered from poverty and hardship. I also grew up relatively unaware of outside threats, like the fact that we were right in the path of potential wildfire. I think that um, the fire behavior surprised everybody. Nobody would have predicted, even the fire experts. Yeah, I mean, yeah, nobody did predict it. A year after the fire, during our annual holiday visit, Mom and I are both getting over the flu, and we cozy up in the office of my parents' mountain house in Tabernash, Colorado. She tells her entire experience of the day of the fire, and she remembers how hopeful she remained that entire day, even when the fire was literally at their doorstep. A year later, we're still trying to understand what happened. When you got out of the house, it was filled with smoke, enough to make your eyes water, and then you saw the bushes on fire past the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Did your expectations of how this day might end change? They still didn't change. No, you'd think I would sort of put things together and say, yeah, I think our house might burn. But no, I still thought, it's okay, the fire guys are there, they're putting out the little bushes, and we'll be fine. Yeah. 
I definitely remember seeing Kyle Clark from Nine News broadcasting from Harper Lake. Really? Yeah, with huge flames behind him. Oh my gosh. Of the fire and it's pushed it up north a little bit. So we are at Washington and McCaslin in, in Louisville where uh, the fire is moving through a neighborhood of fairly. He was probably standing on McCaslin or somewhere close to the lake. Uh, the winds are pushing the fire back up closer to Harper Lake and towards our position. And um, I was hoping that they would kind of pan over into the Enclave neighborhood. So there are homes now that are flanked on three sides by fire. Uh, this is a very bad situation for this neighborhood and for all of those... I still kept hoping, maybe our house is still there. Yeah. You just keep hoping. People say hope will get you through the day. And I think it did for Mom, the day of the Marshall Fire. But I've always been a bit suspicious of unrelenting hope. Wondering if maybe it's actually more like willful ignorance. I think everyone asks the same question when a disaster event destroys everything you have. Why me? We've, we've lived in this house for 33 years. How could this happen? Thought we were pretty secure. We are just about to pay it off and it was going to be our safe place. Did you find yourself going down a line of thought about like trying to answer that question? Did you ever like question God? No, I don't think those really work for me. And if they are biblical, it's more like you just have to accept what happens to you sometimes, like it's the story of Job, and that's the way it is. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? Yeah. <laughs> Job is the wealthy guy in the Old Testament that God tests by taking all his possessions, his children, his health. But still, Job never curses God. Mom doesn't think any of this is a test. My parents are scientists, researchers, and they raised me to evaluate the evidence. So while we talk about the fire having behavior, like it was a discerning monster, we also know that it was a physical event with a cause, and any behavior the fire exhibited was really due to the conditions that were present. The conditions of that day are what we want to understand. When, when the conditions are extreme, what you've done to prepare beforehand is really going to have the biggest impact on like what happens during the event. This is Abby Silver. She's a wildfire mitigation specialist with Boulder County and part of a really cool Boulder program called Wildfire Partners. I decided to talk to her to see if she can help me understand the why behind the Marshall Fire. She explains to me that after the Four Mile Fire, the most expensive Colorado wildfire to date in 2010, Boulder County determined that having wildfire mitigation codes on only new construction wasn't enough. So Wildfire Partners was conceived, and that started off as purely a voluntary program. For existing homeowners who wanted advice on protecting their mountain properties against wildfires. Today, homeowners can get a certification for their fire-mitigated home. Abby got into this work after volunteering as the wildfire mitigation liaison for her mountain community. 
And that was kind of how I got my feet in the water, or maybe I was about up to my waist at that point in community wildfire mitigation. Wildfire Partners was created before there was any kind of certification program for wildfire experts. Abby has also been at the helm for helping develop a new certification program. I am super interested to learn that this is a burgeoning field, despite how desperately it's needed. I think what we are all coming to realize, professional and probably layperson alike, is when the winds are whipping at that kind of intensity and force, there's not a whole lot you can do to control fire behavior, except for modify fuels before the fire reaches the area. Abby educates me on what it takes to create a fire-safe home. Factors like having a five-foot clearing all the way around your home, with nothing flammable in it. That's called defensible space. Having at least 50 feet between your house and the next building, which you can imagine is pretty tough for a lot of suburbs. Having a roof made from fire-resistant materials and a simple roof line that does not have areas where embers might collect. All things my mom and I have never heard before. Learning about what a fire-safe house looks like gives me a little insight into how the Marshall Fire may have burned so easily through neighborhoods. But there is another place I find tons of answers to the question of why. As I'm going through my email one day, I see a story in a newsletter about a forensic report that's been published. The Colorado Division of Fire Prevention and Control led a facilitated learning analysis on the Marshall Fire. It's intended to educate first responders and help those involved better understand what happened. And this report is kind of remarkable. It's a page turner for sure. I mean, I started it. It's 175 pages long with additional videos and links. Abby says it's the most comprehensive post-disaster report she's ever seen, with first-person stories, first-responder footage, and data analysis. It has been the best way for me to try to understand what my neighbors and my parents went through that day. Before reading it, I was expecting something dry and difficult to follow. But it is written from a place of sensitivity that I would never expect from a forensic report. I also think it's a little bit emotionally challenging to read because it's real people's lives and what they were going through. So, but it reads sort of like a fiction novel could or like very good journalism. I had a narrator read sections so you can hear the report for yourself. Here's how it sets the scene on that day. On a dry winter morning between Christmas and New Year's Eve 2021, the communities in Boulder County braced for the wind. The area lies at the base of the Front Range, made up of flat-topped mesas and open grasslands, where creek bottoms are lined with cottonwood trees. On the outskirts of the communities are scattered homes and ranchettes. Farther east are established neighborhoods with mature landscaping and newer subdivisions sparsely planted with shrubs and ornamental hardwoods. Several small wildfires sparked that morning. As the winds began to pick up, a new fire was reported just after 1100 on Marshall Road. 
I get to meet Abby in the flesh on a windy winter day in the enclave a year after the fire. I invite her to come do a tour of the neighborhood with mom, Amy, and me, and we walk up to the mesa where my mom first saw smoke billowing over the hill. And I know this is, this is where you were when you took that video. Yes, that... right here. Just The relentless wind evokes a sense of what happened the day of the Marshall Fire while also ruining nearly all my audio. Even with a huge fuzzy windscreen, my shotgun mic is clipping nearly every word we say. Well, that's wind is just kicking up, just kind of saying, I'm here, I'm not going anywhere. (laughs) But it's a good demonstration for all of us about the powerful force that drove the fire. But the scope of the fire was certainly because of the wind. Right. Right. If the wind hadn't been blowing that day, they would, the fire department would have put out that fire in that little shed and right. end of story. There have been lots of theories about where this fire started and why it spread so far, including one my mom just mentioned about a shed that was seen on fire that morning over near Marshall. But like she said, regardless of where the fire came from, it's this wind that made it so destructive. So those were burning, we know. The report has a detailed section analyzing the weather leading up to and on the day of the Marshall Fire. In it, they describe something called a mountain wave wind event. The wind event that drove the Marshall Fire was the result of a meteorological event referred to as a mountain wave. During a mountain wave, winds flow downhill along the terrain, accelerating towards the base of a large mountain range. This wind event generally only affects a narrow zone in the foothills and adjacent plains. The day of the Marshall Fire, the winds were literally hurricane force, with some gusts clocked at 115 miles per hour. Doors were ripped off the hinges of fire engines and windshields were broken. The report states that these mountain wave wind events are rare. However, there are numerous other well-documented and professionally researched cases of mountain wave winds causing mass blowdown in forests and damage to infrastructure. A diagram in the report shows how a windstorm moves downslope from the top of the Front Range into Boulder Valley and up onto the plains beyond, where Louisville and Superior are located. The strength of the westerly winds with mountain waves is most pronounced in the terrain transition, where the foothills meet the plains. Picture a narrow band, approximately five miles wide, that runs parallel along the Front Range near the toe of the slope. This is the zone where the effects of a mountain wave are the most pronounced. The area where the fire started and spread is right where the toe sits. And right beyond that sits the enclave. So if this mountain wave wind event is rare, yet well documented, why haven't we seen anything like this before? And why didn't anyone predict it? And... Can we really blame the Marshall Fire on climate change? My brother doesn't think so. It had been raining a lot, and everything was really green, growing really well. So what part of that is climate change? That's when we come back. (laughs) 
if you are liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. Take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American West. Hey, thanks, y'all. Remember how I said I am always skeptical of hope? Well, I think my brother has always been skeptical of my skepticism. My family loves to get around the dinner table and bash on politicians, big oil, selfish CEOs. You get the picture. But my brother has grown weary of those conversations. One of the things I've thought a lot about is how much I've witnessed the changing climate right from our backyard. My parents could go cross-country skiing out our back door 30 years ago. Not anymore. I wonder if my brother, being eight years younger than me, remembers it the same way. And I remember making snowmen, snow people, a couple times a winter, at least once. And I don't know if you have those kinds of memories. I remember, yeah, I remember making snowmen, for sure. But I, you know, we've also talked about this, that your memory can kind of trick you. You could remember one day specifically that you made snowmen, and then maybe later that same winter, it snowed a couple more times and you didn't exactly do that. And then the next winter after that, it did snow again and you didn't do that either. But in your mind, it sticks as, oh, we always made snowmen whenever it snowed, because you remember that one instance where you did go out and do it. And all of a sudden, that's what you're comparing to when I don't know if that is the case. Based on just like comparing to your memory, which um, as you just stated is so inaccurate, would you say that the difference in the winters is perceptible to you? Um, I guess, yeah, I would say that difference in winters is perceptible, but not in terms of, oh, it doesn't snow anymore. I, I, I think it's really hard to separate what is actually true from what you're constantly being told is occurring. So for us, you know, being a Colorado person, that is that it's just getting drier. While mom and I talk about the Marshall Fire as a symptom of the climate crisis, Andrew doesn't subscribe so easily. I remember getting back into town from a trip, I think July, like six or so months prior, and flying back into town and seeing how green everything was. And I think it had just rained, and it had been raining a lot, and everything was like, it was beautiful. All of these open spaces and uh, grasslands and stuff, those were all green, and they were growing really well. So so what part of that is climate change? Because that, you know, that kind of goes against the typical climate change that we think we're seeing in the front range, is, which is drought, right? If there's one thing I've learned about the effects of climate change on areas around the world, it's that we can't really know exactly what the effects of climate change are until they're here. After the Marshall Fire Facilitated Learning Analysis report is published, I see that Andrew is right about part of it. The Front Range had a very wet first half of the year with above-normal precipitation and substantial grass growth. The January to May period was one of the wettest on record. The first half of the year had seen low temperatures, tons of rain, and high humidity. But in the next six months, all of that really dried up. And that's what really, that's what really helped fuel the fires. 
you know, we always like what, what we always do in Colorado is everyone guesses when it's going to first snow, whether it's going to be October, mid-October, November. And this was uh, January 1st and this fire was happening. It still hadn't snowed and that's why it was so dry. And this was a fire in the middle of winter. Like Andrew says, this fire happened well outside of Colorado's fire season. But as the report points out, temperatures were warmer and the air was drier than usual. It should be noted that December of 2021 was characterized by temperatures six degrees above average, based on the most recent 19 years of data, and relative humidity was 10% drier than normal during the same period of record. In other words, the earlier part of the year was much wetter than years past. The latter part of the year was hotter and drier, making the air thirstier. Grasses and shrubs grew big and tall in the spring and summer, then went dormant. The water literally sucked out of them, meaning kindling was everywhere. But a rainy spring and dry fall are also a normal part of Colorado's seasonal cycle. So is my brother right? Can we really attribute any of this to climate change? We now want to welcome to the program Kate Calvin, NASA's chief scientist and senior climate advisor. This was an interview on Face the Nation just this year, 2023. There's different impacts in different regions. I think what's important to keep in mind is that climate change is more than just temperature. It's also affecting things like the water cycle. So we're seeing more heavy precipitation events, more droughts. Recently, NASA led a study that confirmed that years of data show increasingly wet and dry spells as symptoms of human-caused climate change. Higher global temperatures create more precipitation, but NASA's study shows the overall trend for the Rocky Mountains is drought. So again, how do we know the increased precipitation in the spring of 2021 is related to climate change? Well... Climate change also means that the growing season in Colorado is getting longer. With higher temperatures, there is less snowpack, and much of the precipitation Colorado is getting is coming in the form of rain instead of snow. This makes for wetter, greener springs, followed by thirstier summers and falls. The writers of the Marshall Fire Report also don't hesitate to blame climate change for more future wildfires. The episodic nature of drought in Colorado will continue to yield years of very little fire activity and years of substantial fire activity. As climate change continues, more areas will burn on average, exposing more structures, destroying more communities, and killing more people. If we're moving toward a climate where fires will become more common, Abby says we all need to watch out. Fire doesn't only just happen in the mountains. It can spread on the plains and through the grasses as well. And uh, I think there had been a sense of sort of complacency or false sense of security of people who lived down sort of in the lower elevation parts of the county that has eroded since the Marshall Fire. For most of the neighbors in the enclave, the fact of climate change being a contributor to the Marshall Fire was undisputable. 
But there's another reason this fire got so big, and it has to do with how well your neighbors are maintaining their property. On our tour, Abby, Amy, Mom, and I talk about the probability of how the Marshall Fire entered the enclave. And there isn't consensus, even among us tree huggers. Amy is convinced that the fire had come up through the hillside neighborhood, directly south of the enclave. Well, of course your house was going to burn eventually. You're right on the mesa. I'm like, that is not how the fire came. Mom and Abby seem unconvinced about whether the fire entered from the south or the west through the mesa. I'm really not sure, but I think most people feel like it came up to our neighborhood from the south. But I was convinced the fire had come in from the mesa to the west. In that video I sent you, you could see everything on the east end of the lot was completely black. Uh-huh. Everything, the thing that was right next to the fence line, that stuff wasn't touched. But everything on the east side of the house, gone. Just like completely wiped out. So that's what makes me think even more that the wind was blowing. Well, if it was blowing from west to east, and I, I definitely saw this over in Spanish Hills, so that doesn't really surprise me to yeah. hear. As we explore the neighborhood, we see that the lots all along the mesa, where my parents' house was, is charred on the east side of the lot. But the wooden fence along the west side of the lot is still there. A couple of my mom's trees and the flagstone patio right next to the fence line look virtually untouched. This means if the fire had come from the mesa, it had somehow jumped the fence line and landed on the houses. If you've ever made a campfire that's contained by rocks, maybe you've noticed the embers flying up into the sky. Have you ever wondered where those embers come down? When a small fire becomes a bigger fire, there will be more of those embers going up into the air which means more of those embers will be coming back down. In a wildfire situation, everything the fire burns will emit embers. Those embers can be small, like the ones you see flying out of your campfire, but they can also be huge, as big as tree limbs. As embers of all different sizes continue spreading, they continue igniting more fuel, which begets more fire which begets more embers until there is something called an ember blizzard. It's a perfect description for what firefighters and first responders see at the front end of a wildfire, because it's a literal blizzard of blowing embers. This is fascinating to learn, because it helps explain how the Marshall Fire got to so many homes, why it got so big. A lot of the science looking at the spread of wildfires shows that homes are not often ignited by flames, but by the embers raining down on them. When those embers get stuck in divots on the roof or rain into openings, the house is much more likely to burn. The concept of the ember blizzard explains, for me, how the fire might have jumped our back fence and patio and landed on the roof and many trees my mom had planted around the lot. Another person joins us about 20 minutes into our tour. His name is Larry. 
and he lived in the hillside neighborhood. Would you want to join us? Yeah, I'm Ariel Avery. This is Abby Silver. Deb Fahey had told him about our tour, and it turns out he knows quite a bit about wildfires, having worked as a volunteer firefighter for 20 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah I lost my home over on, in Hillside, and they all, all burned down but one. As we walk down the hill on the southern part of the neighborhood, the side where Amy and other neighbors think the fire came in, I notice that there are parts of the fence here that are totally gone, and parts where it's still standing. There is also a line of houses still standing on the north side of the road. They run west to east down the hill. Then I hear Larry telling my mom what he saw that day. They came from the west? Yeah. It went right over the hill, right down into our neighborhood, because when the fire department... He says the fire got into his neighborhood, Hillside, from two sides. The southwest and the north, the enclave side. So I was under the impression that your neighborhood burned before our neighborhood. Is that not the case? No, it, 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 as far as I know, it actually came, it came through here first. Really? Huh, that was not what I understood, but... As far as I know, they, they were fighting the fire from that side. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. When I was up, parked up here, I saw the fire came through coming through the, the field above. Uh-huh. And of course, these houses were already on fire at that time. And then of course- We continued debating as we walked down the hill toward the entrance. Here, I just wanted to point out one thing while we're standing Abby here, points out some trees that are partially burned on one side. And the fire was moving when I look at those two trees that are still there. The trees look singed on the east side, but okay on the west side. Burning and the heat was some heat was going back towards those trees, but uh-huh. the, the wind was definitely coming this coming way. This way. Okay. Well, plus the whole tree would have caught fire if the wind straight, was heading towards it. This clue tells Abby that the building to the east of these trees was burning, and the wind was blowing in from the west. Larry and my mom are having a bit of their own conversation, and I hear him telling mom what he knows about the wind's behavior that day. Incredibly intense, high wind in a single direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's why you see some homes remaining where, uh, where so many other ones are gone. Yeah. Yeah. Larry paints a picture of wind blowing so hard that the fire is being blown continually in one direction. So if it misses one house, the house behind it might be saved. He explains that wind always pushes downhill. And during the Marshall Fire, the downhill force of the wind also pushed the fire downhill. Uh, and that's very unusual fire yeah. behavior. That's one thing that we talked about with because of the, that. There's a projected wind map in the Marshall Fire Report that shows in our area, wind had a northeasterly path, meaning the fire could have entered the neighborhood from the west and the south. And looking at the terrain of the whole neighborhood, we see sections where the wind was likely stalled because of upslopes, perhaps saving a house or two. That was just what I know about fire behavior. But why does it matter so much where the fire came from when most of the houses in the enclave burned to the ground regardless of where they were? It matters where the ember blizzard came into the neighborhood because that point is a threshold. 
Remember, the enclave sits just beyond the toe of the mountain wind wave event, where the wind can be at its highest force. So the houses along the threshold are the neighborhood's first line of defense. If the houses on the windward side, the most exposed side, are not properly mitigated, they will ignite. Then, the burning houses on the perimeter invite the fire into the neighborhood. This threshold is called the Wildland Urban Interface. Once that threshold has been passed, homes on the other side are much more likely to burn. The Marshall Fire Report discusses how home-to-home ignition was a major factor in keeping this fire going on such a large and devastating scale. In Louisville, 67% of homes were projected to burn from indirect exposure. In other words, they didn't catch fire from the burning prairie. They caught from other houses that were burning. In Superior, 78% of burned homes caught fire that way. So, in some ways, the threat of wildfire taking your home has more to do with your neighbor's vigilance than anyone really wants to admit. I think it was, it was three feet. I think it was three feet, so we had to keep three feet mode. After our walkthrough of the enclave, Amy, Abby, Mom, and I sit down together to talk things over at a local coffee shop. It's a busy day, but we get a table in the back where I set up my recorder. Mom and Amy are remembering the responsibility of mowing part of the open space beyond the fence. It was one way the city got residents to help maintain the wildland urban interface. This brings us back to how the fire spread. It just kind of looks to me that that is where the fire came from. Amy's still certain that the fire didn't come from the west. But she also doesn't want to put the onus on the people around the perimeter of the neighborhood, because that would put the blame on all of us. Is putting that kind of responsibility on houses that are adjacent to um, open space, and we really think of that like saving an entire neighborhood. With how huge this fire was, Amy can't imagine that good fire mitigation on perimeter lots would have changed anything. She acknowledges the importance of it. To make our homes as safe as we can individually so that we're protecting our neighborhood. But I'm also thinking that had we all done that, we would have the same result, right? Yeah. Well, yes and no. Up to this point in our day, Abby has been mostly an observer. Observing the charred patterns in the neighborhood, observing us espouse our theories. But now... She does a little educating. If the embers that are blowing out of that aren't, like, triggering the next event, then, yeah, maybe you lose that house and a few houses right, right. directly next door to it. Right. But you're not going to end up with this situation. She makes the point that if more houses had that defensible space, 
had cut down more shrubs and trees around their house, maybe the firefighters could have gotten ahead of this thing. Maybe they could have successfully set up fire blocks and the fire wouldn't have turned into the giant monster that it was. So many neighborhoods burned at once, fueled by houses, fences, and ornamental landscaping, all adding to the ember blizzard carried downwind to the next house, and the next, and the next. But she's also talking about community action. In a world where fire is going to be more common and more devastating, creating a firewise neighborhood means nearly everyone has to be actively maintaining their property. If people want to help protect their neighborhood, they may have to give up the ornamental bushes, the wooden decks, and the big shade trees my mom loved so dearly. I go out and do outreach and education is part of it is giving people realistic expectations and we all have to do our part and then the other thing I think is um, realigning our aesthetics and and choices that we make on a community level with the future what are some of those in an environment where we now know wildfires can occur will occur an environment that is experiencing more extreme droughts, Abby says we need to live according to the laws of the land, this land that we're trying to live on. The thing that was sort of disturbing to me was thinking about fire mitigation in Uh, just in total. And the idea of really how far away from your home that you ideally need to have defensible space in order to prevent the spread of fire. I can't think of um, a community that I know of here in the Front Range of Colorado that would meet that. Amy's family is a year into the process of rebuilding their home. A lot of the neighbors are and they are moving forward without any new wildland urban interface building codes from the city of Louisville. And I wonder why. It seems to me like maybe one of the first things the city would want to do is get ahead of this in case it happens again. As the Marshall Fire Report points out, it will happen again. Without co-equal action, no change to the current trajectory of the Front Range of Colorado will occur, and increasingly severe wildfires resulting in widespread community destruction will occur again. As soon as our neighbors start rebuilding, they discover that the city of Louisville does have new building codes, passed just a couple months before the fire. But they don't pertain to wildfire mitigation. To some, those new codes are just more red tape. For our neighbors, they stall rebuilding efforts even further. Plus, they're really expensive. A lot of the people who lost their homes are already overwhelmed by trying to start over, and new building codes add yet another hurdle. 
when they made those decisions to change the codes, they were looking at, you know, a small number of houses being added to Louisville. No one imagined that that was going to be over 500 houses having to be rebuilt. Yet it doesn't deter victims from coming back strong, including my mom. With all her neighbors mustering the courage to rebuild, she's having a change of heart about staying in the senior living facility. I'm part of this Enclave neighborhood email group, and people are all talking about rebuilding and coming back. And I start thinking, well, maybe that's what we should do. That's next time on The Burn Scar. I'm Ariel Avery. I'm Melody Edwards. Noah Greenspan is our assistant producer. Ariel Lavery is our sound designer this season. Ryan Kelly is the digital producer. Thanks also for help from McKenna Lipson and Charles Fournier. To see Ariel's photographs of the burn scar that has become her childhood home, go to our website at themodernwest.org. Our theme song is by Screen Door Porch. We always love hearing from our listeners. Reach out to us at themodernwestpod.org at gmail.com. We're also on social media at Modern West Pod. If you love this show and care about this kind of storytelling, please share it with a friend or leave us a review. The Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media. our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod.